Sammy, what number is this? That's 94 in Bird Talk. Let's go. Hey, what's going on? This is Katie Kremitzos, your host of the Biz Women Rock podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the fun. Here you will find amazing interviews with phenomenal businesswomen in all sorts of different industries from all over the world so that your business journey can be inspired by theirs. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to Lori Kreindler, who's the founder of It's About Time, whose focus is to create and to publish the curriculum for education under the banner of STEM, which is all science and chemistry and technology. Now, Lori has a background in the creative arts, and so it's really interesting that she's in this particular field now, but what is truly common about who she is is that she's always found where the need is in the world so that she can create something that will have a larger impact, and you're really gonna hear how awesome and diverse that's been throughout her life. So let's get rolling. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I am very excited that you're here. I'm specifically interested in learning a little bit more about you and what you do because your industry is very unfamiliar to me and it's very fascinating. And as I was researching, I just found it so, so interesting and pertinent to kind of what's going on in education today. So before we start anything, I'd really like for you to explain exactly what STEM education is because that's so much of what you and your company do right now. So what is STEM? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's so funny. If you turn on the TV almost every day, you'll hear someone of note speaking about STEM from President Obama to Exxon Oil. It's everywhere in the news. And the funny thing is many people have different definitions of STEM. The actual letters, S-T-E-M, stand for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. The way we define it is STEM is essentially a wonderful way to learn that really gets to the scientific process. It's all about doing math and science and engineering in the way that real scientists do and in the way that real mathematicians and engineers do. And in a line, when you do it that way, it's just incredible. It's truly joyous. So students around the country doing real STEM programs from kindergarten through 12th grade are loving math, science, and engineering. Were you a, a little scientist growing up? <laughs> That's so funny. When I was a little kid, I used to love doing chemistry in the bathtub. Really? <laughs> but, uh, you know, with little, it's true. I absolutely loved it. But when I was growing up, I was one of the kids that was basically discouraged from going into math or science. And I was told by my teachers that I wasn't very good at it. So I actually became an art major in school. I always thought I loved math and science and that I was decent at it, but I was never encouraged in school. What kind of stuff did you study in art and kind of what direction did your art degree take you? Well, I actually went to two colleges. I started off at Skidmore, which is in upstate New York, and I was a fine arts major doing both painting, uh, oil painting, and sculpture, primarily out of clay. 
And then I transferred to UNC, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and continued studying painting and sculpture there, which I loved. From doing my research on you, I know that you have this whole film production background. Is there some crossover in sort of how you stumbled into being a film producer as well? Because that's very different than this whole like scientific chemistry focus. So I'm very <laughs> interested. How did you really get into even film production and where, where does that lie in your life? That's really a crazy story. Well, when I was growing up, I had sort of an unusual childhood and my father was a trial lawyer specializing in international trial law, especially in aviation. And as a result, he traveled around the world and we went with him wherever he went. So I traveled constantly to all of the continents and third world nations, you name it. And while we were traveling as a family, we always did a lot of photography and home movies, if you will, informally. After college, when I graduated from Chapel Hill, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do as a career. I started painting, but I found just sort of anecdotally that there was an opening at the United Nations and the position at the UN, I applied and I got the job. The position turned out to be they needed someone to work on the conference that they were running that year on renewable energy. And they needed someone to truly understand renewable energy and present the information to the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, and to basically be the communication link between the NGOs and the actual UN conference. Well, what I found very, very quickly was I absolutely fell in love with the whole concept of renewable energy, both passive and active solar energy. Uh, very much like the solar you see today. But I was so frustrated because the UN, even though the conference was on renewable energy, basically was focusing on non-renewables, the oil and gas and coal, et cetera. So I was whatever I was, about 20 or 21 or something, and I basically wondered what could I do to get all of these UN delegates to truly pay attention to the mission of their own conference. And I got this crazy idea that if I could make a film showing the potential of solar energy, the power of solar energy, and this was back in 1982, I felt if I could make this film and if it could be shown at the United Nations, well, maybe that would make a difference. So to make a long story short, I went up to the head of the conference and I basically said, if I could make this film, would you show it? And he, big tall guy, that literally six foot seven, and he looked down at me as you know, 21-year-old, and he said, if you make the movie, I promise that I will show it. Wow. Yeah, so I said to him, would you be willing to put it in writing? And he said, oh, okay. So I wrote something up. He signed it. So I knew I had a locked-in form of distribution. When I had that letter, I then quit the job at the UN, went out, raised the money for the film, which became my first film, got it made, he showed it, and then it won a bunch of awards, and that made me a filmmaker. Holy cow, girl. You are ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really incredible because as a young 20-year-old, like to really kind of make that move is a very, very courageous. That's awesome. So I get that you won awards. Did it have the effect that you wanted? Your work was being showed in front of very powerful and influential people. So what kind of after effect did it have? 
It was shown at the conference, and that was very rewarding. It also then got shown at the White House, which was very exciting. So that was just a wonderful experience. I cannot say that the actual film had a huge impact. It, it was shown, it was seen by influential people, but as you know, solar energy has taken a many decades to begin to emerge. Right. But um, just personally, it did launch my career, and I went on to make several more movies, and it got me started. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned as the coordinator for all of these films, as the entire producer? Because you had to work with teams, you were calling all the shots, you were making sure you had the right scenery and just making sure that it all came together and hitting to really have it ready. What were some of those major lessons that you really learned as the leader of that first film? Looking back on it now, first I was an art major and then I became a filmmaker and now we have a corporation that I believe is the company is having a huge impact and in many ways my role has always been exactly the same what I do now is to a large extent what I did when I was a painter back in college what I mean by that is essentially my job has always been to even as a painter or as a sculptor to try to identify either a message or a story that I thought needed to be told and that would resonate and then figure out a way to get the story completed and disseminated or shown or put in a place where it could have impact. So that's essentially what I've been doing since I was 21 years old. Now, the modality changes, but when you're a painter or a sculptor, the great thing is you could have the vision and you can do the work on your own, which is very satisfying. You don't have to deal with anybody else, and you could work very directly. So that's the good news. The bad news is when you're a painter or a sculptor, you don't benefit from collaboration. The transition from painting to film was incredibly hard because it essentially was, I felt as if in many ways I had to have my hands tied behind my back And everything I wanted to do, I had to communicate to the director or the cinematographer, you name it, or the editor, and I could not touch anything directly. It was a lesson in how to get something done when you can't do it directly yourself. And those skills are the same ones that I use now in the business. I was just going to say, those are so directly applicable to a businesswoman's life because whether you're a solopreneur or you have a vast team, even as a solopreneur, you're dealing with other people in order to deliver on the projects that you need to and the services that you need to to help you build up those products or services, organize them, all of that stuff. Or whether you're organizing a team of 50 or 100 or 200, doesn't even matter. You're still really utilizing those skills to help others, like empowering others to kind of produce this vision of yours. That's a really great way of, of describing that. I really like that. Thank you. How did you actually go from art student to filmmaker and then into education? How did you make that transition? I think the common denominator is, again, trying to identify a clear need and find a solution to meet that need. So that's the strand that runs through the whole thing. Um, As a filmmaker, actually, my first company was a company called LKL. So Lori Cranland and my husband's last name is Laster. So LKL Productions. That was a company I used to make the films. In addition to unique 
types of distribution like the UN and stuff like that, the films and public television, the films also went into educational distribution. So that process, and I actually had a company that arranged that educational distribution for the films. So that got thinking about education and thinking about educational distribution. Jumping up to 1996, my husband had been in product marketing. He really wanted to have his own business as well. We decided to work directly together. And up in 1996, we essentially said, where is there something where perhaps we could have an impact? And we felt that there was a real opportunity to improve math and science education. When people my age were in school, by and large, math and science education was all about memorization. It was the opposite of what real scientists do, the opposite of what real mathematicians do. Yet in 1996, there was the beginning of a movement to try to change and improve math and science education. And through some funny, funny coincidences, we found ourselves getting to know a number of really influential people in that area and decided to sort of jump in. What were your first steps on actually saying, yes, we have this company and this is what we're going to create? Part of the U.S. government is a National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation had, throughout the 70s and 80s and early 90s, they had funded a huge amount of research on how people learn. They basically said, do people learn math and science by memorizing 2 plus 2 is 4 and 4 plus 4 is 8? And what they found was a lot of research on the notion of multiple intelligences. People actually have different learning modalities, but they also learned that there are a number of very pragmatic things that, if done right, all kids can do much better in math and science. So they basically said, what are the conditions that need to be in place in school? in a classroom environment for kids to do well. And through the research, they identified what those criteria were, and then they figured out how to really implement them. Once they did the research, the cognitive science research and the learning science research on how people learn, especially how students learn, then what they did was they put out requests for proposals for people to write curricula for schools, for math and science, implementing the research that they had funded. So for the first real significant time, they were beginning to fund a whole new way of approaching math and science for K-12. And in 1996, through a series of just crazy coincidences, we ended up meeting the leader of one of the programs that had been funded. It was a program called Active Physics, And the man who was in charge of the project, in charge of active physics, took us to a number of classrooms and we saw it in action. And we just were smitten. We just fell in love with this approach and wanted to try to share this approach with students around the country. That's how we got started. It was you and your husband, right? So you and your husband came together and basically ended up falling into this whole community of people who knew this stuff in in this industry. Did you then say like, okay, we're going to start a business and fill out the RFP and see how it goes? (laughs) (laughs) I had been a filmmaker and my husband had a full-time marketing job at Nabisco at that point. RJR Nabisco doing chocolate covered Oreos. 
of all things, which were delicious. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, really good. As a total side note, I lived in Mexico for a while. The chocolate in Mexico was not nearly as abundant as what it is. And so I would make this like weekly trip to their grocery store and get what equated to these like white chocolate covered Oreos every week. It was like my weekly treat. It was very, very good. So anyway, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. That sounds very good. So my husband's job was a very fattening job for me because I was the the taster (laughs) on all of it. So it was a very fattening job for me. But anyway, so what happened was we saw active physics, which is really an amazing program. We saw active physics being used in a number of classrooms and we went up to the person who was in charge of it. His name is Arthur Eisencraft. And at that point, all of the other massive publishers in America, by the way, just again, as a side note, educational publishing is an interesting industry. There are basically three or four conglomerates, big, big players, and virtually very few small companies. So back in 1996, all of the big companies wanted to publish active physics. And again, huge, huge companies. So this man, Arthur Eisencraft, was getting proposals from what's now Pearson, what's now McGraw-Hill, what's now Harker Brace, et cetera. So here we were. I was, you know, a filmmaker. My husband had a full-time job, but we loved this program. But my husband and I went up to this man, Arthur, and said, if you pick us to become your publisher, we will create a company just for you will create a company just for active physics. And Arthur took a chance. I became the first employee. My husband stayed at Nabisco while we got the company off the ground. And Arthur, it would be interesting to ask him now why he took the chance, but he took a chance on us, and we built our, the company that exists today, 20 years later, all around active physics for him. That's great. So you guys basically collaborated with him and created the curriculum that you believed was going to be the most effective and then submitted it through the RFP process and then got the funding that NSF, the National Science Foundation, actually then used in their activation of this program. Is that right? Well, almost. Um, What did I miss? At the risk of being overly technical, it sort of happened in reverse. The National Science Foundation, and this probably at that point was about 1992, put on an RFP asking the lead academics of the world to create a physics curricula that took advantage of the new research on how people learn. And at that point, several universities and institutions and think tanks, all sorts of people applied for the RFP. The RFP was awarded to the American Association of Physics Teachers, and they appointed Arthur to represent them in the creation of the manuscript and curricula called Active Physics. They then, as part of the NSF process, and this is an important bit, was as a research organization, the NSF funds were not just for the initial manuscript, but rather they were for the manuscript and three years of field test. After every year, feedback would come back from a field test, be put back into the program, and the program would get better and better. So by the time it became 1996, active physics had been through several years of iteration and was really very good. 
that's when we got involved. At that point, there was a very good manuscript, a very good, almost commercial-ready product, and that's when we competed with all the big companies. Essentially, as two individuals, we competed with these huge conglomerates. We won the publishing rights to Actophysics, and we did the commercial version of it and brought it. To, we did the commercial version, all the final editing. We actually did a lot with it. The final editing, we brought all of the hands-on equipment to it, and we brought it to market. Gotcha. Okay, so I think I got that. It's about time. Your company's role in this whole process is basically taking and publishing the curriculum that was created in order to fulfill this program. So you guys are taking it, editing it, making sure it's pretty, and then actually publishing it to the world. Yes. And our tagline now is your partner in STEM education. So we essentially became the partner. We, I, I will say, we did it in a way, though, that the other firms would never have done. Instead of just taking the manuscript and doing the cover design, we invested a ton of money and we truly partnered with the American Association of Physics Teachers and Arthur, and we married the program with incredible hands-on equipment. We then brought it to the largest school districts in the United States, got even more feedback, and really truly partnered with the school districts to make sure the program succeeded. So unlike traditional publishers, we went way above and beyond to ensure the program succeeded. That is so cool. That really launched your company, sort of its first project. Talk a little bit about the growth that you had after that. So Active Physics was our first baby <laughs> and became our flagship. Physics is a true gatekeeper course. Undeniably, kids that do well in physics, almost all of the kids that do well in physics go on to college and do well. Kids that don't take physics, some make it and some don't. As a result, when we did active physics, we began to study the number of kids taking physics and how active physics was increasing that number. So not only were we providing a real unique way to learn physics, we were truly growing the physics market, the number of kids that took physics. And that was a big deal. As a result, we started becoming known amongst all sorts of school districts and other people getting NSF grants. So to make a long story short, all sorts of people started coming to us, and we ended up creating a suite of programs all built on, we, we call it the active physics chassis. So we, as soon as we had active physics and it was truly succeeding, we created active chemistry. We then created what's in effect active earth science, active earth, it's called EarthCom. We created and have an astronomy. They're all built on the same chassis. We also now have a high school math series, which is incredible, called IMP, the Interactive Mathematics Program. They're all built on that same research from the National Science Foundation. They're all built on how people learn, the cognitive and learning sciences. And as a result, so many kids are succeeding in math and science and engineering and STEM that I think would not have succeeded without these programs. 
I guess this is the perfect time for me to ask if you can kind of like break down your revenue model. Are you charging these clients like a consulting fee to put it all together? How does that actual revenue model work for you? We are self-funded based on revenue. One of the reasons our company is unique is, so we have a suite of programs that, that range from middle school through high school STEM. In addition to that, each program has several component parts. There's the actual books, there's the actual hands-on equipment, and there's the professional development consulting services for the schools. So we're able to put together a package for the school districts. That's really a success package to ensure their success. How have you gotten the word out about the services that you offer all these years? That's a really good question. So it's actually changed. We say we're now in It's About Time 3.0. We have sort of a funny history. It's About Time 1.0 is from 96 to 2003. 2.0 was from 2003 through 2011. And now 3.0 is from 2011 to where we are now. Right now, to try to answer your question, one of the things we've done is we've rebranded the company. And we're really excited about the new brand. But we also are now finding that we're figuring out which school districts in the country really want to pursue STEM. I think we have a lot of name recognition in those districts. And we're putting together real success packages for those districts. So we're not trying to be in every school in every town in the country. We're trying to be in every school that really wants STEM success. And we have a whole series of sort of marketing initiatives to help us make that happen. Have you had any challenges in that rebrand? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What were some of the major ones that you had and how did you overcome them? For that answer to make any sense, I need to say that I was deeply involved in company number one. We actually sold the company. In 2003, I had been working 24-7, literally, or maybe 25-8 or something like that <laughs> from the first five years. And I just burnt out. There was no more time. I was every second. Plus, in November of 2012, my father became very ill, and he was my absolute hero. And when he became sick, he had a stroke, but a very, very severe stroke. When he had the stroke... I just stopped working. I just couldn't, and I just stayed with him. And anyways, he passed away in February of 2003, and I just was devastated. As it turned out, we, in January of that year, received an offer from a company called Herf Jones to to purchase a company. We ended up doing that, but there was a contract in place where they would keep every employee and every program and invest a lot of money into the company. So given the fact that I could not do it, we decided to do that. Anyways, I had a non-compete. You ended up coming back into the company in 2011 and buying out the company that had bought you out. So why did you end up doing that? So I was uninvolved from 2003 to 2011. Then in 2011, we had an opportunity to repurchase a company. So we did that. I came back. And that's when we saw a real need to do a rebrand. Now, with that context, to answer your question, the rebrand, it took two years to figure it out because by that point, there were over 2,500 unique SKUs, so many authors, so many programs, so much. 
And the question became, how do we take all of these incredible things, so many things at that point were really being positioned as unique items, how do we take it all and unify it all within one clear brand? So it's an art of synthesizing all of these disparate pieces. I think we now have something, well, that I'm very proud of. I actually love it, but it took two years to come up with it, and it was just really hard. Lori, what advice would you give to anyone who's going through a rebrand, and especially a rebrand after such a long time in the market? Wow. I think it's always darkest before the or to remember it's always darkest before the dawn. <laughs> it was an incredible struggle, and there were so many times when it felt like we just, it's too hard, you know, we're not going to be able to figure this out, but it was just sort of a matter of patience and giving some time for reflection and Again, it literally took two years to figure it out. But I think just to try to have faith and hold on and be patient and try to keep everything in balance. It's especially hard because, of course, it was an ongoing business. So right. it's all about sort of reinventing ourselves while the thing was in motion. And that's incredibly hard to do. During all of these phases of the business, of you starting it from scratch, growing it, selling it, buying it back years later and rebranding, you have definitely have to have accumulated some really sharp leadership skills in order to really make sure that everyone's <laughs> on board for the future growth of your company. You have about 25 full-time folks who are part of your company. At any given moment throughout the year, you might have 20 up to 99 different kind of independent contractors come in to fulfill things. What has been maybe one or two of the best lessons that you have learned as a leader and, and maybe ways that you've evolved as a leader? Going back to where we started the conversation, being in college, doing painting and sculpture and stuff like that. At least for me, there's always been a really clear need. In order to, if you have a whole bunch of paint on a palette, and you have to turn it into something that's going to move people. For me, it always stemmed from a really strong sense of a problem that could be fixed somehow through a tangible means like a painting. So in terms of leadership, for me, it's always been an attempt to be very clear about what our goal is, what our mission is, what the need is in the world that hopefully we as a team can work to improve. So with It's About Time, the need is really clear, crystal clear. How are some of the best ways that you actually communicate that? There's a difference between, hey, everyone, this is our mission and this is what we're doing. But like what real tactics do you have to make sure your team knows that that's your mission and it's very clear? Well, what we did very regularly in company number one, it's been harder now with this company, company number three, but we still try to do it is in company number one especially, if somebody said, what's the single reason you succeeded in the beginning? It's because of what we did to answer your question. So every Friday at 2 o'clock, without fail, no matter what, we had what we called the dog meeting. And it was called the dog because we had this mailbox in the shape of a dog. And throughout the week, people would put ideas, questions, you name it, in the dog, literally in the dog mailbox, so we always had everyone in the company sit down. And at that point, we didn't have that much furniture. So we were literally sitting on boxes or boxes of books or sitting on the floor. People would have questions in the dog. 
we'd talk about all the questions, but the real art, the real unique part of it was we always tried to take every question and everything we did and relate it to our real goal, which was always, it sounds like such a vague, amorphous thing, but it's always been about trying to empower people with STEM, trying to empower people with math, science, and engineering, and always thinking about individual students, individual people that were in our programs as we answered each question, as we decided on every course of action. And it became the company culture. So what happened was all sorts of people, people that didn't care about that as a culture would sort of fade away. But the people that stayed truly, truly believed in that goal of empowering all students with STEM. And because we integrated that into every question, every action, it became the fabric of the company. And now to this day, at least, I don't know, at least a third of the people have been with the company since 1998. Wow. Holy cow. And that's why they've stayed. That's why they've stayed. Because it was so deeply integrated into the real fabric of how we ran the company. It wasn't just talk. It was truly integrated into all of our operations and our decision-making. So just one example, do we turn left or do we turn right? Do we choose course of action A or B? We always said, what's better for the students in the class? What will help the students learn more? It was never, how do we make more money? It was never, what's better for the employees or what's better for investors or whatever. It was always, what's better for the kids? That's how we ran the company, and that's the single uh, most important reason for why we succeeded and why we're succeeding now. Where do you want to take the company? What's the big vision for it? Well, my five-year goal, I mean, to be objective, there's sort of the qualitative answer and stuff like that, but the objective answer is my goal is to have 25% market share for our three top programs, uh, which, by the way, are middle school science, three-year middle school programs, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, our high school math sequence, which is algebra, geometry, algebra, it's a four-year sequence. And, well, I'm not going to say which the third one is because the other authors will get mad at me. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say. Um, but in it. any case, 25% market share on those programs is a very good goal. To put it another way, there are 4 million students in every grade. So that would be 1 million students in all of those grades. So 1 million students in our programs in 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, and in ninth, 10th, and 11th, they'd be in at least two. It's about many millions of students. So, Laurie, we always conclude our conversation with what I call the fabulous favorites. So I'm going to ask you five questions about what is your favorite X, and you're going to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind for it, okay? You ready? Okay. All yep. right. So your favorite business tool? Oh, being honest. Okay. Since you've traveled around so much as a kid, what about your favorite city in the world? My favorite city in the world, without a doubt, is Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia. How about your favorite business book? My favorite business book, Emif. How about your favorite class in high school? Was it chemistry or physics? <laughs> Jewelry making. <laughs> I love it. And last but not least, what is your favorite personal habit that you have? My favorite personal habit? Mm-hmm yoga. I like that one. That's a very, very good one. Well, Lori, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure getting to know you and getting to know more about STEM. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. 
hands down, my favorite part of that conversation was learning about how Lori really implemented their culture and their mission on a regular basis in her company by having their dog meetings, which I thought was so great. It's a great systemized way to be able to answer a lot of the questions that your team has for you. So I really, really love that. And they sat around and answered all the Q&A and always made sure that it was told from the vantage point of their larger mission, which was really to make a difference in the lives of the kids who are learning this information. Totally love that. And I'm going to implement that. I really want to thank you so much for being here today. If you have not already, I would love for you to be a part of the private Facebook group just for you. It's called the BWR Connect. All you have to do is go to bizwomenrock.com to see how you can be a part of that group as well. It's an incredible forum where over 1,400 businesswomen are collaborating with each other, asking each other questions, and I would love for you to be a part of the conversation. I'll see you on the next round. 